0: Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Those insecurities we have, in some cases they're even unbelief or an inability to really believe, to really locked in with a conviction, that God really is faithful to all of his promises. That if the Bible says it, then God's faithful to do it. He's not a promise breaker, he's a promise keeper. He's not an abusive father, he doesn't promise us stuff to get our hopes all up and then not follow through. He's a a God and a father of integrity and he keeps his promises. And when you begin to understand that, you also then begin to cultivate and the, the integrity of his word you begin to understand this word can be depended on. So we used a theme scripture to get us started last week, and we'll kind of trail it with us through the whole study. I don't know if we'll read it every week, but Hebrews chapter 6 verse 16 starts this way and says, Now when people take an oath, and we went last week and we set that up, and we said for us that would be a contract. In the Bible, that was a blood covenant or a contract that was sealed in blood, And there's nothing more binding on the face of the earth that we still know today than a blood covenant because it only one way into it, you had to shed blood. And therefore there was only one way out and you had to shed blood again. So people took this very serious and still do in places around the world where this is practiced. Well, when we bring it to the New Testament, we're talking about the divine new covenant that was signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus. We know a lot about Jesus' blood being shed so that we can be forgiven of our sin, but we don't often connect to and and realize that not only did it purchase the right to a new contract, a new covenant, it signed and sealed the new covenant forever. So it's really important that we understand that. So here, the author's saying that whenever, in our current day, whenever people sign a contract, it goes on and says they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. So for us, that would be the justice system. And once they do, without any question, that oath or that contract is binding. So you can make all the promises you want. You can give a great sales pitch. But until you sign the contract, nothing's, nothing's final. But we know in our culture, once the contract's signed, you're locked in. And there's a justice system that's supposed to hold you to it. But here was the shocking reality we set up last week. Verse 17 said, God also bound himself with an oath. And people are like, wait, what? This is sovereign God, right? He can do anything he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, however he wants. And yet the Bible says, this God bound himself with an oath and he did it so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure Other translations say supremely confident beyond any shadow of a doubt that he would never change his mind. Did you know there are whole systems of belief in Christendom that teach us you never know what God's gonna do. He'll change his mind at will. You may think he's he's promised you something, you may get excited about it and then he may not do that at all, ever. And we're just supposed to be okay with that. But God signed a contract so that you and I could be confident he will never, ever change his mind. Verse number 18, so God has given both his promise and his oath or his contract. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge... Now, we're not talking about a geographic or a physical fleeing. In the New Testament context, we're talking about those of us that realize we are lost in our sin. We're lost in our brokenness. There's no way we're going to earn our way to eternity. And so we run to the safety. We run to the rescue of God's redemption, God's plan. It says those of us who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. I said this last week, I'll say it again this week. It, it, it's interesting to me. It, it's just, you know, it, it's an eye-opening to me when Christians first began to understand from the Bible that God obligated himself in a contract. That's a shock, shocking to Christians. But let me tell you what's even more shocking is when those same Christians, when that finally begins to sink in and they turn around and come to the awareness that they have more confidence in their car insurance, in their health insurance, in their homeowner's insurance contract, more confidence in those than in the contracts and the covenants of God's promise. They never question that. They never question. In fact, they realize there are times when the legal the legal standing is so binding that if the promise that was made in the contract isn't going to come to pass or is in question, they'll get on the phone and they'll fight for that. They'll contend for that promise. They'll say, "Whoa, well, whoa, well, wait a minute now. The contract says" and and they'll they'll realize that's all right. But when it comes to the promises of God, many Christians, I really want to say most, but I'm going to say many Christians just completely surrender. Well, shoot, I I was really hoping God would do that, but I guess he won't do it. And see, the challenge is that we're living in perilous times. These are not the times, really sketchy, dangerous times. That's not me describing what I see going on in the culture. That's me acknowledging what Paul, through the Holy Spirit, said would happen in the last of the last days. And I'm looking around, as as I'm sure you are too, and saying, yep, we're there. We're there. And listen to me, this is not a time in history where we can afford to be more confident in our physical, you know, contracts about everyday business, and yet have no confidence in the contract of God. We are desperate for it. This is the only way That you're going to be able to experience what the Bible tells us, like in Matthew 24, when Jesus lays out for his disciples, when you start seeing all these things and they're intensifying and they're accelerating, you know the end is coming quick. And you read that list and it's scary. We're looking at some of the stuff here, and yet Jesus turns around and says, But when you see it all happen, don't let your heart be troubled. How's that even possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. Because if you're sitting there and you know, man, I'm so glad I have a contract with God. I'm so glad that God's promises are more true and more binding than any other contract in the world. And I can flip open my contract and say, you said right here, that even though the whole earth is shaking and mountains are collapsing into the sea, I don't have to be afraid. I can run into the shelter of my God. See, that's just not poetic language. This is real. And it gets real when we need to depend on it, and this is what we're looking at. Let, let me just kind of bring it, and make it even more real. Okay, uh, there's a lot of chatter right now, a lot of debate. Some of it's political, some of it's you know in, in the science industry, but it's all over the place, right? And it's in our everyday life about vaccines. Do they cause the immune? You know, do they build us a, a, enough immunity? How about natural immunity? You know, is, is that really the way to go? And and are are either of these two in conflict with each other? And some people are saying we're anti-vaxxers, and and. They're there's other reasons besides just science. There's some moral and spiritual principles. I don't want to marginalize that. And other people are like, you know, totally vaccine. If you, don't, if you don't get vaccinated, then you hate other people and you're putting them in danger. And listen to me, let me just tell you, Romans chapter 14 says everything we do as Christ followers must be done in faith. If you're doing it in fear, if you're doing it with any other motivation, you're already off track. It must be done in faith, but here's the question. I don't hear a lot of chattering, even from the Christian community that's talking about the spiritual immunity that God's given us. I don't hear people, uh, there's not a lot of chatter about Psalm 91 that says if we climb into the secret place that he'll deliver us from the pestilence that's sweeping across the land. I don't hear that. And I'll tell you why, because most of, I said it this time instead of many, most of the Christian community has lost sight of the contract we have with God. They're more dependent on the information of science and, the, you know, and, and the, the, the discrepancies that are more dependent on those natural measurements than the spiritual measurements. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't get the vaccine. I'm not saying that all those things are important. I'm saying, where's the faith element? Where are we if we really serve God? And by the way, we're banking our eternities on the fact that, man, I hope he told me the truth, because when life is over, I hope that eternity in heaven thing is real, and we're putting our whole eternity on that. And yet here we are just in the moment of a a pandemic. I'm not marginalizing it. I'm not saying it's not serious. I'm saying, where's the faith in the covenant and contract of God? You can get a vaccine and still be in faith, by the way. You cannot get a vaccine and still be in faith. Or you can get one or not get one, and then there's no faith at all. You're not even thinking about the covenant. But these are the kinds of realities that as we get into the last days, we better understand some things that God said so we can go straight back to the covenants of God, and say, well, before I do anything else, what did God's Word say? Now, listen to me. If if, if you're looking at a promise, you say, yeah, but I've had a bad experience before. We prayed and we asked the Lord for something and we quoted the Bible scripture and it didn't happen. Listen to me, sometimes promises have to be contended for, but let me kind of share a Bible truth that will unfold as as we study. God is never the problem in you getting a promise. You don't have to twist his arm. You don't have to talk him into anything. You don't have to beg and bargain and plead. In fact, if you're trying to do those things, if God doesn't want to do it, he's not going to do it. But if God's already committed himself to something, God's more anxious for you to experience what he promised than you are. The problem is not God. Hosea 4:6 says the problem is first of all you and I. Our ignorance to what God really promised and how serious and binding this is often causes us to be vulnerable and we perish. Dreams perish, relationships perish, confidence perishes, and sometimes physically people perish because they were ignorant. They didn't understand just how reliable this covenant was, or they didn't understand what the covenant offered. But Jesus brought up another good point. In John 10:10. he said, there's a thief. And that thief comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, that's exactly why I came, so that you could have life and have it to the fullest potential. And see, and, and, and we walk through these realities, and I know intellectually they connect, they compute, especially if you've grown up in Christianity, because we can sing one thing on Sunday with sincerity of heart and completely forgot what we sang on Monday. And now we're wrestling with the challenges of the world, and that's what we read in Ephesians when it says we're without God and without hope. We're, we're saved, we're going to heaven, but in everyday life, we, we're on our own. We don't want to be. We don't have any confidence in God. See, that's not how it's supposed to be. And some of you, you know, when you're confronted with that, I remember when I first understood this, it was shocking to me. I mean, it was, it was startling to me to have to come down and just be honest and be real. Do I believe God is telling the truth or not? And when it shocked me, I, I just remember, I, I would ask him these questions, but how do I know? How do I know? How do I know? Listen to me, we're going to see it again today. That's what this whole series is about. How do we build our faith? How do we go from being skeptical to being completely convinced? No, no, this is real. In fact, if any contract I've ever experienced is binding and can be, can be you know, stood on, the contract of God will never, ever fail me. And this is exactly what we're studying. Let, let me just kind of pause and, and, uh, and help you to make sure you're getting everything out of this. Listen, if you missed last week, get the podcast. I'm not saying that because I delivered a good message, although it was a good message but it's an important foundational study. Go back and get that podcast. Not only that, if you haven't done so already, we're giving away these little study guides, and this is just to help you to walk through, and so you can maximize and rethink and kind of you know marinate a little more on some of the things that God said. You can't hear it one time, and it gets all the way woven down in who you are. You've got to keep listening and, and studying and thinking and wrestling with this stuff as it gets down into you. If you haven't done so, join a connect group. I'm telling you, the best learning of all doesn't happen by sitting and listening. It doesn't even happen just by taking notes and studying uh, in other times. It happens by sitting around with other people. And by chewing, what do you think about that? Well, here, you know, when, when I heard that, this is what it hit me too, you know, and yeah, but we come back, that, that's how we get it woven into our life, and that's how we develop this rich community. And I also recommended another supplemental teaching, uh, it's not something that we're using uh, for the study, but it, it's a rich, rich resource, happens to be by, by my brother Jerry. Uh, God swears to keep his promises. I told you I wasn't getting any royalties or any, you know, any, uh, anything out of this. However, we sold so many copies, I may call and renegotiate with that with them. I'm not sure. Uh, but that wasn't the deal, right? So, but we can get it for you at a better price. There's an audible version. And uh, so if, if you want to pick one up today, I think we have a few left. Uh, and we're trying to decide whether we should order another quantity, or you can go and they'll tell you where to go find that uh, so you can order it for your own. Now, Some people argue when you lean into this covenant contract and the surety of it and the, you know, the consistency of God's integrity. Some people argue, yeah, but but for us to say that God signed and obligated himself to a contract, isn't that a violation of God's sovereignty? Because God is over everything, right? God's sovereign over everything. And and let me just tell you, we're going to see it as we come through. You're saying, but if I say that God obligated himself, isn't that a violation of his sovereignty? Well, first of all, you didn't say it. I didn't say it. The Bible said it. We just read what the Bible said. And we're trying to be honorable to what God said. But the second thing is, I'm gonna to propose to you that if you'll understand that God in his sovereignty, nobody twisted his arm, nobody pressured him, he wasn't in a spot, had to negotiate a deal you know, to get out of something. God in his sovereignty who lives above it all, he's the one who came and said, tell you what I'm gonna do. He's the one who suggested this. Listen to me, covenant is God's idea. Covenant was God's way. When you begin to understand this, the entire Bible is two contracts. It's the Old Testament, or that's the word for covenant in the Old English, and the New Testament. The Old Testament sets up the New Testament so we can eventually get into this new eternal contract that was signed in the blood of Jesus. When you begin to recognize the Bible's not just a love letter from God, it's very loving, it's very warm. But the Bible's a legal document in the courts of heaven And listen to me, when we begin to understand that, then all of a sudden our understanding and our appreciation of a sovereign God and his willingness to lean in and do whatever it took so that he could win over our trust, that's an amazing thing. And that's exactly what we're building on here. The Bible is is, is a contract written by God. In fact, the Bible is full of covenants. And uh, and I want to read you another one this morning that relates to some things that are going on in our life and in our culture today. Listen to Jeremiah 33, verse 17. For thus says the Lord, the sovereign Lord, right? Nobody's twisting his arm. Thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of 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 Israel, verse eighteen, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices. Notice this forever. Now everybody knows it's it's been true from the beginning of the Bible that heaven and earth, uh, or I'm sorry, that the earth here doesn't last forever. But this says, nope, I'm making this contract. I'm making this covenant. This is going to last forever. Well, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33 tells us that Jesus then is coming from the house or the lineage of David, and Jesus is now the one sitting on the throne of David forever. He's sitting up in heaven. That'll never, ever change. When we get there, we'll see him seated at the right hand of God. Not only that, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 says that part of Jesus' new role, his divine role, is he's become a, a priest a high priest for us, a representative between God and man, and he will attain, he will hold on to that role forever and ever. Both of those references in the New Testament said what God was saying back there, that man that'll sit on David's throne, that man that will, be, that will occupy the, the priesthood, yeah, that man was Jesus. These have been fulfilled. But he's not done talking. Listen to verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time, let me just stop. There's another covenant. So evidently God's got a covenant with the day and a covenant with the night. This is how this rhythm's gonna go and I won't break my word to you and you never get to break your word. This is how it's gonna go and we can verify it at least in the 58 years I've been here, day and night are pretty consistent. They just come because God made a covenant with the day and with the night. By the way, let me just tell you about another covenant way back there in creation. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, God made a covenant with the earth and with man that he would never again flood the earth in a worldwide flood. And he made that to Noah. In fact, you and I see a symbol or the sign of a covenant of God on a regular basis, many, many times after it rains, you see this giant rainbow in the sky. That's just not a physical phenomena. That's a covenant that God made, and God says, I'll tell you what, from this point on, this is what you're going to see, and every time you do, I want you to remember I have a covenant with the earth and with all of you on the earth, and I still remember my covenant. I'm still paying attention to this. He's showing us his signature line over and over and over. We've grown up seeing this. We take pictures of it. We put it on cards. We put it on our our Facebook pages, you know? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Since I'm already there, let me just go a little further, right? listen, if you go back and study your Bible, Genesis chapter six, verse one tells you why God flooded the earth in the first place. The effects from sexual immorality had become so widespread and so devastating that God had no choice. It was irreversible. God had to wipe out everybody except for Noah and his family and start all over again. And there's a lot to why that that was the case, but God made that decision. But he put a rainbow and said, I'll never do that again, ever do that again. Now listen to me. Don't you think for a minute that the symbol that the LGBTQ plus movement has taken is the rainbow? Don't think for a minute that that's by mistake. I'm not saying whoever determined that understood this, but spiritually, that was the enemy thumbing his nose right in God's face and saying, let me take your your spiritual contract and let me just show you what I'm going to do with that. I'm telling you, every time you see that, don't think about the pretty colors and all the wonderful diversity. Think about this is a contract that God made with mankind. And it's being thrown back in the face of God because the first time he had, he had to cleanse the earth was because of this particular area, this breach in, in morality. And here we are again, and, and this thing's repeating, and the enemy's just saying, you can't stop me, but he can, and he will. I'm just telling you, these are contractual things. When you begin to understand how serious covenant is and how serious contract is, all of a sudden you see it all over the place. And and when that happens, your faith is not just in some warm inspiration, some wonderful feeling you get when you're in church, your faith is rooted in a covenant that God made for you and I, because he will not lie, he cannot lie, and we can bank our life on this. Let let me keep going and show you this, we're in uh, verse number 22 now, so again, he says if you can break the covenant with the day and the night, and he says verse 21, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. So, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests to minister. So, again, verse 20 and 21, he says, You can't break the covenant with the day and the night, so you won't be able to break the covenant that I have with David and with the Levitical priests. And we know in the New Testament they weren't able to. John chapter 1 says, Jesus came, he was the light, that darkness tried to overwhelm and suppress it. Wasn't gonna happen. Wasn't gonna happen. And God did what he promised he would do. But I wanted you to see that because next he talks about how that particular covenant now affects us. Listen to this. Verse 22, and as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, my servant. First, he was talking about the man or a man. Now he's saying there's going to be a lot. I'm going to multiply the offspring of David, my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Real quick, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that you and I, when we accept Christ, we we attain a royal assignment. We are literally ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, part of a royal government that's there. We're representing the king in the earth, upholding the covenants that he made, so much so that Revelations chapter 1 looks back in history once it's all over and refers to us as kings and priests unto God. You say kings? Well, yeah, Jesus is the King of Kings. Who do you think he's the kings over? He's those that are in authority, those that rule and reign in life because of the covenant that God gave. Jesus is still the supreme ruler over all of that. Listen to me, it says as long as you can see day and night coming, you don't have to get up and say, "I wonder if God's commitments still true." Well, it's daytime. <laughs> And it was nighttime a little while ago, and it's going to be nighttime again. If that covenant's true, then this covenant's still true, and I still have an authority that I can walk because of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for me. This is, this is so relevant. Your Christianity just gets real and just gets weighty. All right, so for the rest of the day, we're going to start outlining the fundamental aspects Uh, of what it means to have a covenant. And it's important uh, in this because as you recognize it, you're gonna start seeing it connected all over the Bible and you're gonna start seeing why we've said things and we've sung things and we've read things that we had no idea what that meant. But you're gonna start seeing, nope, this is your relationship with God and this is really real. And it's gonna take us a few weeks to do this. You just kinda gotta lock into this while we build a framework. Uh, But there's three basic things involved in a covenant. Number one is you have to understand what it is. Number two, you have to understand what it involves. And number three, you have to understand how the agreement comes together. What are all the components and how does this contract or this promise come together? And once you understand that again, you can spot it in scripture and you can absorb it and you can begin to build faith. So here's the first one. What is a blood covenant? What is a blood covenant? Again, I've said it several times, but a blood covenant is the most binding agreement that that has ever been known to the history of mankind. That's not a spiritual statement. That's a historically documented fact. It's the most binding agreement, but it's always between two different parties, and it's primarily motivated by one of two things. It's either motivated by love so for example, when two people get engaged and they come stand at an altar in front of somebody that can uh, officiate that, that's, that, that marriage, then that, that's a covenant that's based on love. I can't tell you how many people that I've done premarital counseling to, and I'm trying to get principles across, but they're so lost in their starry-eyed. Like, why, why do you think this is good marriage? Because I just love him so much. And you do, and that's wonderful. Hold on to that well, we got to have a few other things under here to make life really work, right? But love is such a powerful motivator. But the second reason for a contract or a blood covenant to be, to be signed and sealed is strengths and weaknesses. Now, this is where uh, if you picked up this book uh, that I still don't get any commission off of, if you picked up that book uh, and you started reading, page 15 starts walking through some of this stuff. And Pastor Jerry gives a great illustration about strengths and weaknesses, and I won't quote it exactly, but he talks about if two tribes, you know, are, are existence and one tribe uh, is, are great in agriculture, man, they can grow crops. I mean, just the lettuce and the tomatoes and the, the fruit comes out just big and sweet every single time, but these guys can't defend themselves to save their life. And so all the other tribes just kind of sit around and wait till all the the harvest comes in. And then here they come and they just steal all their stuff and they go back. Well, not far away, there's another tribe and these guys can't grow weeds, but they are ferocious fighters. And so these two tribes get together and said, tell you what, I'll swap you protection for produce. And and that's exactly how covenants come together. It had nothing to do with whether we like each other. Those tribes would probably never hang around with each other. They're just different temperaments, but there's a strength and a weakness complement that is very much needed. This is still happening in our contracts all the time, Company merges, often we'll trade, you know, product for revenue and, or, or, for, or for market share. And all of these things are strengths and weaknesses. not that, we hey, we're just best buddies and we're so much in love, we should do this. They may not even like each other, but they can recognize there's another value here that needs to be understood because together we are better than we are apart. Now, when it comes to the covenant that God has with us, his motivations were both. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he did the unthinkable and he sent his only son Jesus to sign and seal a contract in blood to prove and demonstrate to us that he was going to do what he promised, and he wanted to rescue and bring us to live with him forever. That was the love motivation of God. That never changes. It's still his premier characteristic that he likes to be known of. God is love. At the end of the day, God just loves from wall to wall, and that's his motivation. However, it's also based on strengths and weaknesses because you and I were, were just decimated. We were lost, underwater, irrecoverable in our sin. And Jesus, who was flawless and spotless and divine in his nature, he came and he switched. In fact, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that he who knew no sin was made to be sin for you and I so that we could become the righteousness of God. The sinless righteousness of Jesus was his strength. And the sinfulness, the brokenness, the inability for us to go any amount of time without messing up. That's still true, by the way, because we're, we're still being perfected. But Jesus came and said, I'll trade you. We'll swap. And that was the covenant. It allows us to live a supernatural, divinely inspired and infused life. Not because of us, we that was the weak part of us, but because we put our faith and Jesus brought us. And some of you say, Pat, I just can't grasp that though. It's like we're talking about all this stuff. I just can't get my head around it. And maybe you can't right now. It takes a little bit of time. But even if you can't grasp it, listen to me, you can relate. Especially those that are parents. Because from the first time that little one arrived in your house, you've been trading your strength for their weakness on every single turn. Every single turn. Sometimes it's been costly. It's cost you sleep. It's cost you energy. It's cost you sleepless nights worrying and thinking and trying to understand what to do. It's cost you more money than you ever imagined it would. And listen to me, you might do some things different, but you would do it. You'd do it all over again because there's a love motivation and there's a strengths and weaknesses deficit and you're still doing that to try to give your kids a better life. This is exactly why God did what God promised he would do for us. And listen, he'd do it all over again. He's not going back on his word. He's excited about what this can bring to our life. So that's number one. What is a covenant? Why is it initiated in the first place? Here's the second part. What does a blood covenant involve? What does a blood covenant involve? Well, there's four Pre, uh, preliminary parts that need to be decided about a contract that's in blood. And interestingly enough, it's pretty true to the contracts we have today. And here, here we are, it, be, before contracts are signed, you have to understand the terms. What's this thing all about? You have to understand the length of the contract you have to understand the, the, you know, where are we going to go to sign and how does this look in us coming together and, and, and verifying this? And then finally, there has to be a covenant representative or a contract, someone who's in a place of authority to sign this. So let's walk through these and see how they relate to us in the New Testament. Again, the terms of the covenant are where the parameters, the boundaries, but also the benefits were all outlined. And these were thoroughly discussed. They were all documented prior to the signing of the contract, and, uh, and it, it's really a reflection of today's paperwork. So in 2003, Debbie and I uh, had been married for 18 years, and uh, we came here to South Carolina. We'd always lived in church parsonages. We'd never been able to own a home, but we, we just knew that God was going to help us to do that one day. Well, we came here, and in a short period of time, we thought, I think we can do this. And so we started moving forward and we were able to to sign a contract uh, on a home. And I'll never never forget driving to the specific place where the lawyer's office was that, you know, they designated this where you have to come to sign the contract. And we get there and, you know, I'm a little nervous because I thought this is a big deal. You know, this is a lot of money and we've never done this before. And we sat there and I'll never forget they brought in the stack of paper that seemed like it was about three inches thick. And I'm like, what is that? You know, I was the contract. And there were layer after layer after layer after layer. And the lawyer sat there with us and he just handed us a sheet of paper. And let me tell you what you're signing here. And okay, you need to sign here and here and initial there, there and there. Okay. And sign again at the bottom, put the date right there. Okay. Next piece of paper. And we just meticulously started walking through, seemed like it took us a couple of hours. But we were almost two hours into it, and someone comes walking abruptly through the door and said, I am so sorry. But we just realized there's a little technicality that we messed up on throughout the whole contract. We have to do it all over again. So they were gracious enough to say, why don't you guys go grab some lunch and come back and do it again? And that's exactly what we did. We started over with a fresh stack, and he walked us through the whole thing again. But that's the documentation. Now, I want you to get that in your mind, because listen to me, the whole Old Testament... Is the documentation that sets up the New Testament. Let me say it differently. The whole old covenant, the old contract, was to make sure that all the Ts were crossed and all the Is were dotted, all the legalities were taken care, all the messianic promises, all the laws, all the principles that were detailed and put in place. That whole thick Old Testament, the old covenant, was all to set up one thing: the new covenant and you wonder, why do we have all that in there? uh, That's why. So that's not important anymore. That's extremely important because that's all the documentation that set up what Jesus was then able to come and enact so that you and I can enjoy what we're enjoying now. And there's lots of times where what we see in the new covenant is reflected or mirrored first to us in the old covenant. Only we realize he was saying someday this is going to happen. And the new covenant says it happened it happened. it's a reality for you right now these are legal covenant terms so the first one's the terms and they've been set in the old testament and they're enacted or they're uh, they're enabled for us to participate in the new covenant number 2 is the length of the covenant in, in today in the same way today's contract has term limits or they have a kind of a duration clause so you know you can sign a mortgage 30 years 20 years 10 years and what have you but there's a time frame on it Blood covenants throughout the Old Testament uh, were a minimum the, the term length of the life of the individual because they were coming and signing in their own blood. This was not for, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months. This is, hey, we're in this for life. And so they would come and sign. But many, many places in, in the uh, Old Testament, we see that blood covenants were extended to future generations. In fact, uh, the Old Testament records that God's covenant to us Even in the Old Testament, but extending on into the New Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, oftentimes it was to a thousand generations. That's 38,000 years, by the way, just on an average, according to how scholars measure generations, which means we're not even close to being through with that. But the New Testament came and said, yeah, we've got a better contract with better promises. And by the way, this one is eternal. We get started here, but it really comes into full effect and upgrades for us when we get over there. So the contract, the promises that we have, we get started here, but then they upgrade for us over there. We know what to expect over there because the promises of God tell us that. By the way, if you've got the workbook, I gave you a whole bunch of supporting scriptures and examples right there. We don't have time to go through them, uh, but you can go look those up to see the term limits that God uh, spells out in the Old Testament. So first one's the term, second's the length. The third one's the site of the covenant. And today, where you sign a contract is really important because there needs to be some weightiness about the legalities and the place. You just don't, you know, meet for a large contract in the corner of a Starbucks somewhere and scratch it on the back of a napkin. You're usually in a lawyer's office. You're in the corporate office of a company merger or something. Or another, another covenant that we're familiar with is marriages. And not necessarily for all the same reasons, but uh, picking out a marriage venue is a big deal, <laughs> it's a big deal, but it doesn't matter, you know, which arena you're in, they're all to show the significance and the sacredness of this covenant. This is not just kind of a flimpid, you know, and eh, we're just going to see how it works out. This is a really big deal, and lots of time and investment, scouting, are set to, uh, to, to, to where the covenant's going to happen. Not only that, the, the place of the covenant, the site of the covenant is important, because it has to be somewhere where, un, where the witnesses that are going to be, crucial to verify this and the people that are going to sign they have to be in proximity and so all of that's taken into consideration how many guests you're going to have and, and where, you know, where do we have room for the ceremony and where's, where are all the bride's, bridesmaids and the, and the groomsmen and all that stuff has to be taken into consideration and, and, and they do that because it's significant but it's important now listen to this many scholars believe that in Genesis chapter 22 when God instructed Abraham I want you to take your son And I want you to take a bundle of wood, and I want you to head off this direction. And when you get to a certain mountain range, I'll tell you, climb that mountain right there. And he did. And he got up to the top of the mountain, and he built an altar. And God said, okay, take your son Isaac and lay him on the altar. He's the sacrifice that I want you to give. And as heartbroken, as grievous as Abraham was... He found his faith and he trusted God. Hebrews 11 tells us that he believed that even if he killed Abraham, which was unthinkable, I mean, Isaac, it was unthinkable, but even if he killed Isaac, he believed that God would raise him from the dead because God's promise was true. So he laid Isaac on the altar. He tied him up. The knife went up. And just as it was about to come down, the Bible says that heaven spoke and said, no, no, don't do that. But many scholars believe that in Genesis 22, that mountain he was on was the same mountain that thousands of years later Jesus would be crucified on. Because when God asked Abraham to give his son, once he saw Abraham's willingness, then God obligated himself and said, okay, if you're willing to give yours, I'll give mine. And here we are, we have Jesus who's on the, on, in Calvary in the Aramaic, and you'll hear Golgotha, same place, but it was high up on a hill because it needed to be witnessed by everybody, verified by, by who needed to, and not only that, we have a historical document. That's just not a Bible story that we tell, and we're just believing it by faith. It absolutely happened. We have documentation historically that it happened, so the site was very, very important. Here's the final one in in far as the the four preliminaries was the representative of the covenant. And this is a person of authority on each side. So if you're in a company transaction, it might be the CEO. It might be the owner of the business. Maybe it's the board of directors. But all of them have to get together and they have to sign that. Then there has to be lawyers and others to witness, you know, uh, uh, notaries and things that have to witness that because that's important even in marriages, of course, you have to have the engaged couple, but each of them need at least one witness with them to sign and verify that. The New Testament tells us that Jesus was our representative. He's the one that stood and he signed this divine contract between man and God. He, he signed it for us. So again, his crucifixion was not just to pay the price for our sin, It was as a representative to sign and seal the New Testament contract. And I know that a lot of Christians are like, I never knew that. Well, listen, you're not alone. I know Christians that have have been, you know, serving Jesus for decades. And they've read a scripture or heard a scripture almost, you know, almost consistently every single month as they're taking communion and had no idea that what what they were reading. But Luke 22, 20, Jesus said... After supper, he, Jesus, took the cup and he said, this cup is, or we would say represents, the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And listen to me, the reason you have to let that click Because if you don't recognize when we're taking communion that we're rehearsing when Jesus sealed and signed a contract to legitimize and guarantee all those promises of God, then you'll eat a cracker, you'll drink some juice, you'll do it reverently with respect in your heart, but you won't receive any of the promises that were sealed and delivered on that day. And we're actually going to look at this in a few weeks because Paul points this out and said there's a lot of people that are unnecessarily suffering, and some of them actually leave the earth early because they didn't understand the sacredness and, and the, the, the receptivity involved in the communion. And see, these, these are huge opportunities. And this is what the Bible is trying to get across to us. So that's Jesus as our representative. We'll keep unfolding him. Let me get to the last part. Uh, and the last part is nine ceremonial commitments of blood covenant. Don't worry, we're just going to cover the first one today, not all nine, just number one today. But this, this really, when you start uncovering this, this really is the best and most profound part of, 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 of understanding covenant. Uh, so let me just cover this first one. Uh, in order for there to be commitments, the first thing that had to happen, there had to be an agreement in blood. Now, again, that's unthinkable. That's barbaric to us today because we're, we're super polished and super civilized. But I'm just telling you, this was serious to them and it was an agreement in blood. And the agreement in blood had to happen in two parts. So the first, the first part was a trail of blood had to be created. And so in the Old Testament, uh, this is what they'll do. They'll select a large animal or sometimes a combination of a whole bunch of animals and, and they will take them to the site of the covenant and then they will slit their throat, and as the blood begins to spill out, then they'll, they'll take them from the top of their neck and, the, and slit them all the way down the spine to the tail and split the animal completely in half and lay the animal right in half as all the rest of the blood and the entrails and everything spill right in the middle and create this long pathway, and in that pathway is where the, the commitment will be made. Now, the second part, once a trail of blood is made, that then the people that are representing this will step into that pathway of blood and they'll make verbal commitments that will set up the rest of the particulars. They'll say something to the effect of, I understand as I'm standing in this blood today that I lose my independence. It's no longer about what I think, what I want, only this is about, this is a transaction and we are forever joined together. I also understand that this is so serious that if I violate this covenant, that what was done to these animals will be done to me. There's no way out of this thing. This is a forever, forever contract. Listen to me, unless you've been in some kind of active combat, unless you've worked in a slaughterhouse or you field dressed a lot of large animals, we can't even imagine the sights, the sounds, the smell that's involved in this think about it you know even back in the old testament they they step into that and i mean these are large animals and there's all i mean a lot of blood and the entrails and they step into all this and they're sloshing around ankle deep in sandals it's still warm i mean this, this is gruesome but it was supposed to be because it was supposed to mark your consciousness forever you're never supposed to forget how serious and how weighty this covenant was. That blood was shed so that this contract could be sealed so that you could remember on, the other, on one side how, how weighty the commitments were for you to receive, but how weighty they were that you were obligating yourself on the other way. Now listen to me. This is why when we try to watch movies like The Passion... It's we, we, Something in us wants to watch that, right? Because we really want to understand, but you watch it and it's hard to watch. I mean, it, listen, it doesn't even come close, by the way, to capturing what the Bible says Jesus went through. It's just a small little representation, but it's enough to where a polished, civilized, disconnected society like us, we, we kind of realize, oh, that's just too much. That's too much. But the reality is, When Jesus was purchasing our redemption, when he was signing and sealing the covenant in his blood, Jesus Christ hung as the lamb of God and his blood spilled to the earth. He hung between heaven and earth and right in the middle, all of his blood was all over the ground. Jesus created a divine pathway of blood and he stepped into that blood for you and I in an agonizing way and said, I sign and seal this covenant, this contract between us and the Lord forever." when that begins to settle in, when that begins to soak in, you don't read a promise lighthearted anymore. You say, oh my goodness. Even if I don't think that's a big deal, it was so costly to Jesus. It was so costly to to heaven to put this together. There was so much documentation, so much effort, pushing through so much resistance to finally get me here. How can I not receive and, 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 and understand and appreciate what God has worked so hard to purchase? It's almost an insult to God to brush it off and say, Yeah, you know, if the Lord wants to do it, he'll do it. Are you kidding me? You just haven't let it soak in. This was weighty. This was serious. This was sobering. In fact, I want you to keep that picture. I'm going to read you one more passage and I I promise I'm done. We're not even going to teach on this. Listen to Genesis chapter 15. This is a time that we're going to go back and study in, in more detail. This is a time when God first made a blood covenant with a man named Abram. Genesis chapter 15 verse 7. We're closing here. And he, that's God, said to him, that's Abram. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, that's Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I'll possess it? Now, let me just stop. We get that, right? Because that's what we say all the time. We need something, and God says, oh, that that promise is awesome, Lord. Let that be true. Let that be true. But then we hear that loud whisper on the inside that nags us through the rest of the week. But how do I know that God will do what he promised he would do? I can see it. I know he said it, but how do I know he'll do it? And this is exactly what we do all the time. Verse 9, God responds to him. It says, and he, God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10. And he, that's Abram, brought him all of these and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Listen, if God would have said that to us, how do I know you're going to do it? Bring me a heifer. You'd be like, why? I don't even know where I get a heifer. I don't even know what that is. Why would we do that? But Abraham lived in a culture of covenant. And as soon as God said that, Abraham's eyes widened and said, you got to be kidding me. You're going to covenant to this with me in blood and no hesitation, no instruction. God didn't have to say, let me tell you what to do. Abraham said, I got it. I got it. And Abraham went and got all these animals and he split them open and laid. And that trail of blood was right there. And listen, we'll pick up in verse number 17. It says, and when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Now we're going to find out just what that smoking pot was and that flaming torch. And we're also going to find out that Paul preaches about this in Galatians three and says that covenant still belongs to us today. That was the first initial introduction to God say, but you, you wait till you see what's coming. And that belongs to us today. You say, Pastor, how do I know that God will keep his promises? Same way that Abraham did. Because he sealed it with a contract. He sealed it with an oath. He double guaranteed it. As if his promise wasn't enough. He never lies. He's not a promise breaker. But we needed something extra. So God said, okay, I'll I'll sign a contract with you in blood, unbreakable. And then you'll know for sure when you read something, I'll never change my mind. I'll do exactly what I promised. Kind of brings us to these relevant questions. What, what is it you need today? What are the areas that you've been doing without or the areas you've been suffering through and, and wishing and hoping that God would just come do something for you? What, what are those areas and what, what has God already said about them? What, what are the promises that you have as a born again believer, a follower of Christ? What are the things that God went to so much trouble guaranteeing you? What are those? and we can even make them relevant, right? Maybe they're not something that is here, but it's looking at all the impending stuff. What do we do about the COVID and all the different, you know, variations and, and the vaccines or not the vaccines. And, and what, what do we do in all that situation? What, what are we supposed to do? And I'm telling you, we lean back into the covenant of God. We lean back in and say, Lord, talk to me.